Section 9 of Chapter 16 of The History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 16, Section 9. Dunlop was, in the meantime, magnifying, wherever he went, the divine goodness which had, by so humble an instrument as himself, brought a noble person back to the right path. Montgomery no sooner heard of this wonderful work of grace than he, too, began to experience compunction. He went to Melville, made a confession not exactly coinciding with Ross's, and obtained a pass for England. William was then in Ireland, and Mary was governing in his stead. At her feet, Montgomery threw himself. He tried to move her pity by speaking of his broken fortunes, and to ingratiate himself with her by praising her sweet and affable manners. He gave up to her the names of his fellow plotters. He vowed to dedicate his whole life to her service if she would obtain for him some place which might enable him to subsist with decency. She was so much touched by his supplications and flatteries that she recommended him to her husband's favor. But the just distrust and abhorrence with which William regarded Montgomery were not to be overcome. Before the traitor had been admitted to Mary's presence, he had obtained a promise that he should be allowed to depart in safety. The promise was kept. During some months he lay hid in London, and contrived to carry on a negotiation with the government. He offered to be a witness against his accomplices, on condition of having a good place. William would bid no higher than a pardon. At length the communications were broken off. Montgomery retired for a time to France. He soon returned to London, and passed the miserable remnant of his life in forming plots which came to nothing, and in writing libels which are distinguished by the grace and vigor of their style from most of the productions of the Jacobite press. Annandale, when he learned that his two accomplices had turned approvers, retired to Bath and pretended to drink the waters. Thence he was soon brought up to London by a warrant. He acknowledged that he had been seduced into treason, but he declared that he had only said amen to the plans of others, and that his childlike simplicity had been imposed on by Montgomery, that worst, that falsest, that most unquiet of human beings. The noble penitent then proceeded to make atonement for his own crime by criminating other people, English and Scotch, Whig and Tory, guilty and innocent, some he accused on his own knowledge, and some on mere hearsay. Among those whom he accused on his own knowledge was Neville Payne, who had not, it should seem, been mentioned either by Ross or by Montgomery. Payne, pursued by messengers and warrants, was so ill-advised as to take refuge in Scotland. Had he remained in England he would have been safe, for though the moral proofs of his own guilt were complete, there was not such legal evidence as would have satisfied a jury that he had committed high treason. He could not be subjected to torture in order to force him to furnish evidence against himself, nor could he be long confined without being brought to trial. But the moment that he passed the border he was at the mercy of the government of which he was the deadly foe. The claim of right had recognized torture as, in cases like his, a legitimate mode of obtaining information and no habeas corpus act secured him against a long detention. The unhappy man was arrested, carried to Edinburgh, and brought before the Privy Council. 
The general notion was that he was a knave and a coward, and that the first sign of the boots and thumbscrews would bring out all the guilty secrets with which he had been entrusted. But Payne had a far braver spirit than those high-born plotters with whom it was his misfortune to have been connected. Twice he was subjected to frightful torments, but not a word inculpating himself or any other person could be wrung out of him. Some counsellors left the board in horror, but the pious Crawford presided. He was not much troubled with the weakness of compassion where an Amalekite was concerned, and forced the executioner to hammer in wedge after wedge between the knees of the prisoner, till the pain was as great as the human frame can sustain without dissolution. Payne was then carried to the castle of Edinburgh, where he long remained, utterly forgotten, as he touchingly complained, by those whose sake he had endured more than the bitterness of death. Yet no ingratitude could dampen the ardor of his fanatical loyalty, and he continued year after year in his cell to plan insurrections and invasions. Before Payne's arrest, the estates had been adjourned after a session as important as any that had ever been held in Scotland. The nation generally acquiesced in the new ecclesiastical constitution. The indifferent, a large portion of every society, were glad that the anarchy was over and conformed to the Presbyterian Church as they had conformed to the Episcopal Church. To the moderate Presbyterians, the settlement which had been made was on the whole satisfactory. Most of the strict Presbyterians brought themselves to accept it under protest, as a large installment of what was due. They missed indeed what they considered as the perfect beauty and symmetry of that church which had, forty years before, been the glory of Scotland. But though the second temple was not equal to the first, the chosen people might well rejoice to think that they were, after a long captivity in Babylon, suffered to rebuild, though imperfectly, the house of God on the old foundations. Nor could it misbecome them to feel for the latitudinarian William a grateful affection such as the restored Jews had felt for the heathen Cyrus. There were, however, two parties which regarded the settlement of 1690 with implacable detestation. Those Scotsmen who were Episcopalians on conviction and with fervor appear to have been few. But among them were some persons superior, not perhaps in natural parts, but in learning, in taste, and in the art of composition, to the theologians of the sect which had now become dominant. It might not have been safe for the ejected curates and professors to give vent in their own country to the anger which they felt, but the English press was open to them, and they were sure of the approbation of a large part of the English people. During several years they continued to torment their enemies and to amuse the public with a succession of ingenious and spirited pamphlets. In some of these works the hardships suffered by the rabbled priests of the western shires are set forth with a skill which irresistibly moves pity and an indignation. In others the cruelty with which the covenanters had been treated during the reigns of the last two kings of the house of Stuart is extenuated by every artifice of sophistry. There is much joking on the bad Latin which some Presbyterian teachers had uttered while seated in academic chairs lately occupied by great scholars. Much was said about the ignorant contempt which the victorious barbarians professed for science and literature. They were accused of anathematizing the modern systems of natural philosophy as damnable heresies, of condemning geometry as a soul-destroying pursuit, of discouraging even the study of those tongues in which the sacred books were written. Learning, it was said, would soon be extinct in Scotland. The universities, under their new rulers, were languishing and must soon perish. The booksellers had been half ruined. 
they found that the whole profit of their business would not pay the rent of their shops, and were preparing to emigrate to some country where letters were held in esteem by those whose office was to instruct the public. Among the ministers of religion no purchaser of books was left. The Episcopalian divine was glad to sell for a morsel of bread whatever part of his library had not been torn to pieces or burned by the Christmas mobs, and the only library of a Presbyterian divine consisted of an explanation of the Apocalypse and a commentary on the Song of Songs. The pulpit oratory of the triumphant party was an inexhaustible subject of mirth. One little volume, entitled The Scotch Presbyterian Eloquence Displayed, had an immense success in the South among both high churchmen and scoffers, and is not yet quite forgotten. It was indeed a book well fitted to lie on the hall table of a squire whose religion consisted in hating extemporaneous prayer and nasal psalmody. On a rainy day, when it was impossible to hunt or shoot, neither the card-table nor the backgammon board would have been, in the intervals of the flagon and the pasty, so agreeable a resource. Nowhere else, perhaps, can be found, in so small a compass, so large a collection of ludicrous quotations and anecdotes. Some grave men, however, who bore no love to the Calvinistic doctrine or discipline, shook their heads over this lively jest-book, and hinted their opinion that the writer, while holding up to derision the absurd rhetoric by which coarse-minded and ignorant men tried to illustrate dark questions of theology, and to excite devotional feeling among the populace, had sometimes forgotten the reverence due to sacred things. The effect which tracts of this sort produced on the public mind of England could not be fully discerned while England and Scotland were independent of each other but manifested itself very soon after the union of the kingdoms in a way which we still have reason and which our posterity will probably long have reason to lament. The extreme Presbyterians were as much out of humor as the extreme prelatists, and were as little inclined as the extreme prelatists to take the oath of allegiance to William and Mary. Indeed, though the Jacobite non-juror and the Cameronian non-juror were diametrically opposed to each other in opinion, Though they regarded each other with mortal aversion, though neither of them would have had any scruple about persecuting the other, they had much in common. They were perhaps the two most remarkable specimens that the world could show of perverse absurdity. Each of them considered his darling form of ecclesiastical polity not as a means but as an end, as the one thing needful, as the quintessence of the Christian religion. Each of them childishly fancied that he had found a theory of civil government in his Bible, neither shrank from the frightful consequences to which his theory led. To all objections both had one answer, Thus saith the Lord. Both agreed in boasting that the arguments, which to atheistical politicians seemed unanswerable, presented no difficulty to the saint. It might be perfectly true that, by relaxing the rigor of his principles, he might save his country from slavery, anarchy, universal ruin. But his business was not to save his country, but to save his soul. He obeyed the commands of God and left the event to God. One of the two fanatical sects held that, to the end of time, the nation would be bound to obey the heir of the Stuarts. The other held that, to the end of time, the nation would be bound by the solemn league and covenant, and thus both agreed in regarding the new sovereigns as usurpers. The Presbyterian non-jurors have scarcely been heard of out of Scotland and perhaps it may not now be generally known, even in Scotland, how long they continued to form a distinct class. They held that their country was under a pre-contract to the Most High, and could never, while the world lasted, enter into any engagement inconsistent with that pre-contract. 
an Erastian, a latitudinarian, a man who knelt to receive the bread and wine from the hands of bishops, and who bore, though not very patiently, to hear anthems chaunted by choristers in white vestments, could not be king of a covenanted kingdom. William had, moreover, forfeited all claim to the crown by committing that sin for which, in the old time, a dynasty preternaturally appointed had been preternaturally deposed. He had connived at the escape of his father-in-law, that idolater, that murderer, that man of Belial, who ought to have been hewn to pieces before the Lord, like Agag. Nay, the crime of William had exceeded that of Saul. Saul had spared only one Amalekite, and had smitten the rest. What Amalekite had William smitten? The pure church had been twenty-eight years under persecution. Her children had been imprisoned, transported, branded, shot, hanged, drowned, tortured. And yet he who called himself her deliverer had not suffered her to see her desire upon her enemies. The bloody Claverhouse had been graciously received at St. James. The bloody Mackenzie had found a secure and luxurious retreat among the malignants of Oxford. The younger Dalrymple who had prosecuted the saints, the elder Dalrymple who had sat in judgment on the saints, were great and powerful. It was said by careless Gallios that there was no choice between William and James, and that it was wisdom to choose the less of two evils. Such was indeed the wisdom of this world. But the wisdom which was from above taught us that, of two things, both of which were evil in the sight of God, we should choose neither. As soon as James was restored, it would be a duty to disown and withstand him. The present duty was to disown and withstand his son-in-law. Nothing must be said, nothing must be done, that could be construed into a recognition of the authority of the man from Holland. The godly must pay no duties to him, must hold no offices under him, must receive no wages from him, must sign no instruments in which he was styled king. Anne succeeded William, and Anne was designated by those who called themselves the remnant of the true church, as the pretended queen, the wicked woman, the Jezebel. George I succeeded Anne, and George I was the pretended king, the German beast. George II succeeded George I. George II, too, was a pretended king, and was accused of having outdone the wickedness of his wicked predecessors by passing a law in defiance of that divine law which ordains that no witch shall be suffered to live. George III succeeded George II, and still these men continued with unabated steadfastness though in language less ferocious than before, to disclaim all allegiance to an uncovenanted sovereign. So late as the year 1806, they were still bearing their public testimony against the sin of owning his government by paying taxes, by taking out excise licenses, by joining the volunteers, or by laboring on public works. The number of these zealots went on diminishing till at length they were so thinly scattered over Scotland that they were nowhere numerous enough to have a meeting-house, and were known by the name of the non-hearers. They, however, still assembled and prayed in private dwellings, and still persisted in considering themselves as the chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the peculiar people, which amidst the common degeneracy alone preserved the faith of a better age. It is by no means improbable that this superstition, the most irrational and the most unsocial into which Protestant Christianity has ever been corrupted by human prejudices and passions, may still linger in a few obscure farmhouses. The king was but half satisfied with the manner in which the ecclesiastical polity of Scotland had been settled. He thought that the Episcopalians had been hardly used, 
and he apprehended that they might be still more hardly used when the new system was fully organized. He had been very desirous that the act which established the Presbyterian Church should be accompanied by an act allowing persons who were not members of that church to hold their own religious assemblies freely, and he had particularly directed Melville to look to this. But some popular preachers harangued so vehemently at Edinburgh against liberty of conscience, which they called the mystery of iniquity, that Melville did not venture to obey his master's instructions. A draught of a toleration act was offered to the Parliament by a private member, but was coldly received and suffered to drop. William, however, was fully determined to prevent the dominant sect from indulging in the luxury of persecution, and he took an early opportunity of announcing his determination. The first general assembly of the newly established church met soon after his return from Ireland. Some zealous Presbyterians hoped that Crawford would be the commissioner, and the ministers of Edinburgh drew up a paper in which they very intelligibly hinted that this was their wish. William, however, selected Lord Carmichael, a nobleman distinguished by good sense, humanity, and moderation. The royal letter to the assembly was eminently wise in substance and impressive in language. We expect, the king wrote, that your management shall be such that we may have no reason to repent of what we have done. We never could be of the mind that violence was suited to the advancing of true religion, nor do we intend that our authority shall ever be a tool to the irregular passions of any party. Moderation is what religion enjoins what neighboring churches expect from you, and what we recommend to you. The Sixty and their associates would probably have been glad to reply in language resembling that which, as some of them could well remember, had been held by the clergy to Charles II during his residence in Scotland. But they had just been informed that there was in England a strong feeling in favor of the rabbled curates, and that it would, at such a conjecture, be madness in the body which represented the Presbyterian Church to quarrel with the king. The assembly therefore returned a grateful and respectful answer to the royal letter, and assured his majesty that they had suffered too much from oppression ever to be oppressors. End of section 9 Recording by S.T. Macduff